This is Steve Smith at the California Western School of Law, and I call the Law Review to order. Today on Law Review, we look at two of the hottest topics in law, disability law and health law. Our very special guests are Laura Rothstein from the University of Louisville School of Law and Mark Rothstein from the University of Louisville School of Medicine. I call them the first family of American legal education. Thank you for being with us on the Law Review. Happy to be here. Happy to be here. So Laura, I was on a, on, on a plane uh, not long ago and someone brought a dog on, not in a kennel, but just a dog on, saying that this was a service dog of some sort. And the dog was slightly disruptive. Other passengers were upset. And the airline personnel said, well, we, this is because of the ADA. Uh, that sounded strange to me. Is that right? Well, actually, on a plane itself, it would really be the Air Carrier Access Act, but it does blend into the ADA. And that's probably one of the so issues. So when we say the ADA, we're talking about the Americans with Disabilities the Act. The Americans with Disabilities Act that was passed in 1990, and it gave broad coverage to people with disabilities in employment, places of public accommodation, state and local government programs. So virtually every place of education, uh, things like museums, movie theaters, most employers, uh, hotels, restaurants, huge broad coverage started in 1990. And over the years, the issues have evolved and uh, continue to uh, create new challenges. But the one that you raised, which is animals, has probably gotten a lot of public awareness lately because there are questions about, well, and I've had this question a lot. Uh, what do you have to allow? Where do you have to allow it? And what restrictions are there? And the Department of Justice, and actually a lot of people have recognized that there needed to be some clarification about what animals you could bring, what you could ask about the animal, uh, where they could go, what their behavior had to be. So. Um, in uh, about two years ago, two and a half years ago, they issued the regulations for Title II and Title III, which are the public places and the public accommodations. These titles meaning being parts of federal the law. The parts of the federal law. And it's it would be the movie theaters, the, the schools, the colleges, the public schools. And they said the only animals that can be brought, that you're entitled to, are... As a matter of an accommodation. Uh, as a matter of accommodation mm -hmm. that you're entitled to. Now, this doesn't mean that there might be state, not be state law that requires more or that the place could allow more. But if you were to say, I have rights under the ADA, this would be the limitation. And the limitation would be to dogs and miniature horses. Only miniature horses. and uh, Meaning you can't bring your... Pet boa constrictor. You cannot bring your boa constrictor, your parrot, your ferret, your cat, your cat. But it's only now. It's important to recognize that that doesn't apply to housing. Although there's some uh, debate and discussion about university, college dorms, and so on about whether they're subject to the housing laws or that, and that's actually in the state of litigation. It also doesn't apply to employment. So you might have an employee who says, I want to bring my companion boa constrictor, and that would be considered separately. And those, those clarifications haven't happened yet. But in a place of public accommodation, uh, you can uh, bring a dog that has to be an assistance dog that does not apply to what are sometimes referred to as companion animals or emotional support animals, although there's kind of a caveat, the animal has to be trained to do something. So there might be an individual 
who has um, some mental health problems that stressors and so the individual um, the the dog would be trained to know that the person was starting to have a, a mental health problem and the dog will be trained to nudge him or her or to do something so it has to be a dog or horse that's trained to do something and the horses are usually um, for people who are blind that's primarily uh. where the assistance horse would would come into play um, but it's it can't doesn't have to you don't have cats so the dog that is just makes me feel less anxious if they're not trained to do something they don't have a right to be there now here comes the difficult part for the place of public accommodation. Let's say you're the manager of a restaurant. Someone brings their dog into the restaurant. It doesn't appear to look like it does anything other than look cute and be friendly and nice, or maybe be a little noisy. So you're very limited in what you can ask. You can't ask, do you have a disability? But you can ask, is this dog an assistant animal that's trained to, to do something? And it's very limited. I think the reason behind that was they did not want to make it burdensome for an individual to have to have some official documentation to carry around. And that reasoning makes sense, except that I think there is some questioning about, well, what if you're in a college setting where you're in class all the time or you're in a dorm all the time or a uh, residence hall or the library? Wouldn't, shouldn't it be reasonable to be able to ask more for more documentation? And I think there's maybe some awareness that that might need some additional attention. But for now, that's what you well, can do. Your, your, your wonderful answer to a apparently simple situation is, is really illustrative of, of maybe the complexity of the Americans with Disabilities Act, the ADA. So let's stop there and go back one step and say, all right, what does the ADA essentially, in the broadest form, pro provide or say? The ADA basically says you can't discriminate against someone with a disability, and it defines what a disability is. It means a substantial limitation to one or more major life activities. The statute actually defines a non-inclusive, not exclusive uh, list of what major life activities are, with seeing, walking, and so on. Uh, someone who has a record of such a disability, so for example, someone who was cured of cancer might be protected under the ADA or someone who's regarded as disabled. So if you think someone is has a mental health problem, but they aren't re they don't really, but you regard them as having that, they might be protected against discrimination. So oh. going back to the airplane example, if the person who brought the dog on on board uh, had diabetes and it was subject to periodic uh, difficulty that required uh, intervention, either insulin or sugar or something, would that be considered a disability as you described it as uh, substantially limiting a, a major activity? Uh, most courts today would say the person with diabetes was. Now there was some dispute and it was amended uh, four or five years ago in, in 2008 to be much more likely that almost anyone who has diabetes or epilepsy or uh, certain kinds of conditions like that would be likely to be covered. And then you get to the next step about, well, does that mean they're otherwise qualified and is this a reasonable accommodation? And that gets to the dog on the plane who so is that too big been, and too noisy. The issue is, was it a reasonable accommodation for the person to have the dog with him, assuming that the dog could do something, which is what you said earlier. Right. In this case, the dog could determine the person was about to have a, a, an a insulin shock incident. or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that then would be the the it, reasonable accommodation would be the airline allowing a dog 
to, to accompany a passenger when that ordinarily would not be the case. Right. And then uh, that the regulations on animals go on to talk about that doesn't mean you can have a disruptive animal. It doesn't mean uh, you don't have to take the, the animal for a walk so it can take care of its business. Uh, the, the emergency landing. Emergency landing, <laughs> yeah, uh, which, which can be a challenge for, for people in large airports when they're changing planes. And many airports, not all, have done a better job of providing a place where the dogs can go and do things. But um, it, you can't take a, a, a barking dog to a theater and say, well, this is my reasonable accommodation because... You're not otherwise qualified. Because it's not reasonable. It's not reasonable. I mean, it's too disruptive. It's too disruptive. Of the, of the um, another issue I uh, that, that could come up is if the animal's too large to and it pre- pre- prevents safety on the plane. You could say, "I'm sorry, the Great Dane is too big. It doesn't fit in this, um, you know, 30 passenger or 12 passenger plane, and so we don't have to do it." Um, and the actually because the Air Carrier Access Act has its own set of rules about animals, it creates this interesting thing that most airports are funded are a combination of federal funded, uh, state and local governments, so they'd be subject to a lot of different statutes. So what you might be able to bring on the plane might not be exactly the same about what you might be able to take to the restaurant that's in the airport terminal. You mentioned states have uh, ADA like laws as well as the federal governments, or some states do. Um, and in California, that's the, the case. We've talked on, on this earlier program, so it's about federal preemption. Do, does the federal ADA preempt state laws that are more stringent? No, it doesn't. Uh, it would be whichever provides you the most protection, that would be the one that's applicable. I, I suppose most of us see the ADA and the cutouts and curbs and, and physical barrier doors that open and so forth, but, but our discussion so far really hasn't involved physical barriers mostly. It applies, the ADA and other disability laws, you're saying applies to a huge range of active, almost all activities. It, it, it's broad in two senses. It applies to people with a wide range of conditions, everything from mental health problems to the mobility impairment, the sensory impairment, but it might be someone who has food allergies or chemical sensitivity. You could have an interesting case about the person that's allergic to dogs or allergic to peanuts, which might be served on the plane, and uh, the person that has wants to bring their uh, assistance dog on board. And the airlines have gotten more adept about knowing how to balance and anticipate those kinds of uh, of moving so, people around, so the person who might right. be allergic is a long way from the or dog, that, that sort of if thing. you um, uh, say for example, and I, I'm not sure exactly how all the airlines do this, but for example, if you have an allergy to dogs, if I had an allergy to dogs, uh, I should probably notify the airline I have an allergy to dogs and I can't be on board with a dog or a cat or a, you know any kind of animal, and so there may be some uh, obligation of them to you know but if I didn't notify them and I show up and there's a dog on board there may be an obligation for them to find me another flight but that would be a severe allergy right where you would want to oh, not just a small not, not yeah. just a couple of sneezes right yeah. and the the case where it became because it, and, and forgive me for interrupting but the, the reason for that is because it wouldn't be interfering with a major life activity sufficiently to be considered a disability or, or right it would yeah. not be sufficiently um, and and actually there's some case law about uh, you know just how severe does it have to be yeah. to have a ke- chemical sensitivities are challenging the person says I want to be in an environment where never no one uses anything that has any scent in it and well uh, we are actually this studio in which we're recording this 
is fragrance free <laughs> studio. Mm-hmm. I mean, it is. It is. There's a sign outdoors uh, bit, on the door that says that. that. Uh, a step, because most people think of fragrances like perfume and yeah, essential right. hairspray. But what if you said no one can come to this workplace that uses any scent in the detergent they use in their uh, oh. uh, or the soap that they use at home? So this is one room in in the building. But if we tried to make the whole building that way, it would be more... It, it, there'd probably be an argument that would be unduly burdensome for yeah. you. To, and it would be unduly burdensome on everybody else who comes in the building. What are you going to do? Have uh, uh, smell detectors at the doors. And, right. um, but it, 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 there's not a lot of cases where that's come up, but it can be challenging for the individual. So far, we've been dealing with physical uh, issues, of, uh, including allergies, of but would the ADA apply to mental illnesses as well? Yes, it would. And um, the, the person has to be substantially limited. So there have been some cases where they've said, well, you just have mild depression, so you're not covered. But someone who has a severe mental illness would be protected by the ADA, but they have to also be otherwise qualified. So if the program, the employer, the, the place of accommodation could show that this person poses a danger to someone else because of the mental illness, then the person could be excluded or could be, um, let's say in an employment setting where the, uh, the employee has an emotional outburst and, and uh, just really has an episode where they're very disruptive, dangerous, threatening in the workplace. Well, the fact that the person has mental illness means that they are a person with a disability, but they have to not pose a danger in that setting. Taking a kind of a, a difficult example in, in the Sandy Hook school shooting and so forth, there's a lot of attention to gun control laws. And there's a suggestion that I, I think the mentally, some mentally ill people cannot obtain guns now. And there's certainly suggestions for increasing uh, the mentally ill who cannot obtain guns. That sounds like that's discrimination based on a disability if mental illness is a disability. Well, actually, this is a nice segue into some privacy issues because we've both talked about this in the context of some of the things. Well, we want to have some national register of everyone who's ever gotten mental health treatment uh, and they shouldn't get a gun. And while I'm uh, in agreement with the goal of having a safe environment for everyone and doing what we need to do, um, having some, every time somebody gets uh, treated for mental health, what would be the consequence of that? You're not gonna go get treatment because I'm gonna go on some national register and maybe I'm not worried about getting a gun, but I'm worried about that being on some place that's going to get accidentally uh, released. And those kinds of things happen every now and then. Every patient who's ever taken uh, Prozac uh, you know, but would that would leaving the register out of it does just saying you can't have a gun if you have a mental illness doesn't that discriminate against someone? Why does that not violate it, the it, ADA? Is what I guess. Well, I I don't think we'll we'll know that for sure except to until someone tests that if they they put that in place. But it um, probably if that were litigated, it would have to be the burden would be on the denier of the gun to say you did an individualized assessment. Because everyone who's diagnosed with every uh, mental health condition isn't automatically dangerous, right. and isn't likely. You know, how do you do the predictive? What's you know who has the so that remains to be seen, and probably yep. become part of this discussion as things move along. I assume. I think it will. Well, let's let's turn to another kind of uh, ADA issue, which is uh, educational 
issues uh, and learning disabilities and the like. Anyone who's walked through a professional school, I assume undergraduate schools, have, have heard discussions of issues related to learning disabilities and accommodations. How big an issue has that become for universities and, f for that matter, for, for high schools? It's become a very big issue for a couple reasons. With the special education laws that were passed in 1975, we have more and more young people who are identified as having learning disabilities come all the way through high school, grade school, high school, having gotten special education. And where 30 years ago, they would not have had the skills to get into and succeed in college, many of them now do. So they reach college age and they uh, can succeed, many of them, if they have reasonable accommodations. And so we have this challenge of determining, number one, do they have a disability that entitles them to reasonable accommodation? And if you have a student that has uh, just is a slow reader, that doesn't necessarily mean that student's So what would be examples of what, what I'm calling educational disabilities? Well, uh, the, well, the learning disabilities, learning disabilities. ADD. Uh, well, and say what those words. Attention deficit disorder, okay. attention hyperactivity deficit disorder, but also what comes up uh, in several cases now are anxiety. Dyslexia. Dyslexia. Dyslexia is a type of learning disability. There's a yeah. whole cat. There's a whole okay. range uh, of of learning disabilities. Uh, it could be dysgraphia, an ability to do math, and uh, for some people, they need to have uh, they process better orally some are better auditory some have to see it and so it depends it's an individualized assessment and uh, those students might be entitled to um, accommodations but you have to well, what, what would accommodations might mean be extra time do? the sort of classic one is extra time on exams because it might take longer to read material it, there are some learning disabilities that make it difficult to bubble in a uh, standardized test form so instead of bubbling in they could write a b c or d and then somebody else puts it in the, the, bubble the in bubbling form. in I suppose no one would see as giving someone a potential competitive disadvantage, but anybody who's been in a, a law school, a medical school, a graduate school recently worry about, t with t time and tests, tests in which time is short to complete them, about worrying about, is someone getting an advantage I don't have because they get double time? Yeah, that's a very um, challenging issue. And it puts a burden on the institution to do assessment of whether the documentation really demonstrates that they have a learning disability and to make an assessment about whether the extra time means that the person could be tested for what they know, not how fast they can do it. And there are some contexts in which speed is, uh, I would say, a student in a trial advocacy setting where you have to be able to jump up and uh, object quickly, be able to process written materials very quickly. Uh, they might not be, it might be appropriate to say, no, we're not going to give you extra time for that. But the burden's on the institution to demonstrate why they can't. Why do you think won't. institutions basically do a pretty good job of, of challenging, um, by challenging, I mean, looking at uh, carefully the request for accommodations? I think it varies a lot. I think higher education has gotten much better than it was over the years, but uh, shrinking resources mean, you know, if I'm going to have to hire uh, somebody, an outside psychologist, or have a big office that evaluates all that documentation or to um, uh, ensure that they have that, that's going to be a challenge dollar-wise. But I think it has improved. Do I think it's perfect? I don't. I think some institutions over-accommodate 
students because it's easier to to um, uh, I, I couldn't tell you how many I think do this, but I think some do. So is there anything a student in such an institution who thinks there's over-accommodation can or should do? I actually get, I know you go to a, law, a lot of law schools. That's a question I get once in a while from people who complain. And I actually did a four-school study once, just looked at four schools that I had access to. And the level of test accommodation ranged from under 10 to over 35 is in four relatively similar schools. They were in different states, so that may account for Under that. 10? Under 10 percent. I'm sorry, oh, I'm 10 percent of the student body had accommodation, test accommodations oh. to over 35 in, in a different and institution. And that's, that's a pretty wide range. Yeah, that was, so, <laughs> so I'm suspecting that somewhere in that range, you know, there, there's probably some over-accommodation. Yeah. But I would also say, just because you don't have to legally do something doesn't mean, and I don't know how they're counting accommodation, it's yeah, very, that, well, that, very you know standard to accommodate be, yeah. a, a, a pregnant student. Yeah. And that person would not be uh, disabled mm-hmm. under the statute, but to allow rest breaks during the exam, to allow makeup exams on a different date. Or being in a, in a room by yourself so there aren't distractions would is different than the amount of time on an exam, right. I suppose. Right, right. And uh, so uh, the, one of the things you hear uh, many schools ask, or I hear, is that the panic attacks and the exam anxiety. And for the most part, courts are not finding that to be a disability. It could be Because a, most judges <laughs> experience them themselves. When well, they it could alone. be a symptom. But this is a very severe, I mean, you're talking about someone with severe reaction. Right, but, um, and, and there are some, there are actually several cases on that. And they do, a, the courts have done a pretty good job of doing an individualized determination. Does that person with that panic anxiety, and for the most part, they're saying, it, it has to be compared to the average person in the general population, and it's normal to be anxious about exams. I just read a case where the court said that. Uh, it's not unusual. And here was a person who had functioned well before, and he I think it was a medical school setting, if I'm remembering the case right. And the fact that he wanted to have some accommodations, he'd never needed them before. He was very high performing. He put a lot of uh, pressure on himself. And they said, you, you don't have a disability. Well, in answer to your question earlier about what can you tell the students who are worried yeah. about others getting accommodations, I think if you distribute to the student body in, in general the guidelines and um, rules for when you get accommodations and the kind of proof that the individual has to provide, then the other students will say, oh, well, if they gave students accommodations they must have had to go through all these steps and therefore it's legitimate that's a an interesting that's an interesting suggestion and actually I think one that very few schools probably do unless you're seeking it an accommodation well, I, you probably don't see those rules. Right. Well, that's right. I think well I think most schools have them available it's just you that just you wouldn't necessarily know about them unless yeah. you had sought the accommodation yeah well, what's next for disability law? You mentioned Congress had changed, broadened the ADA four or five years ago. What's next? Well, I think there's, with the with the broadened amendment, we're seeing a lot of em- employment uh, cases. I think one of the issues that's going to come up is undue burden. Uh, there is allowance in the statutes that say if you, if it's unduly burdensome, either administratively or financially, to provide accommodations, that can be a defense. It's almost, it, there's almost no case law where that has been raised as a defense. But as we have shrinking resources in every setting, I think it may become more likely that employers, places of higher education, 
Uh, we'll argue that. What I suspect is we won't see much case law on it because when they argue it, it may end up being settled. And there probably has been litigation. But I think with the, with the economic crunch, the very, very expensive accommodations may come under some scrutiny. Today on Law Review, our guests are Laura Rothstein from the University of Louisville School of Law and Mark Rothstein from the University of Louisville School of Medicine. Mark, you're also a lawyer and you've written on almost every aspect of health law, but today we want to talk about medical privacy. People generally say that they consider medical information about the most private of the information about them that exists. And yet we keep seeing news stories of people's uh, medical information being discarded in trash cans that other people pull out of thumb drives with lots of medical information uh, being lost or stolen. Uh, how private are our medical records? Well, they're not as private as we'd like them to be. <laughs> um, the main challenge in health privacy now is the effect of technology. Uh, technology will help us avoid the problem of the discarded paper records in the file. The counter of that is that they may be hackable or um, the breaches of privacy are much worse in, in kind and, and because um, if you spot 10 files, you've got 10 files. Right. If a thumb drive or a disk is lost, you might have 100,000 records that are disclosed. So it's, it's, it's a different kind of thing. And um, we're having a difficult time dealing with privacy uh, and technology in, in, in various settings. Well, are there any laws that help protect well, privacy? I mean, there's been a general rule of confidentiality for medical information. The people who, doctors and hospitals have had it, just to, either by statute or by common law, an obligation of privacy. But the electronic stuff that you're talking about is a whole new dimension, as you say. Right. Um, well, the best that we have is the HIPAA privacy rule. And HIPAA stands for? The Health Insurance Portability and Accountability Act. And wow, it's a law that's a gold star. Nobody knows. <laughs> it's a law that was not enacted for privacy purposes, but there is a title, a provision in the act that um, deals with privacy, and that's where these notices that you get in her doctor's office come from. And it may be a sentence or two in the statute, but there are thousands of pages of regulations. That's right. And in fact, the regulations were just amended um, a few weeks ago at the end of January, which was the first time in the 10 years that the uh, privacy rules have been on the books. But with all those regulations, why do you still say they're not as private as we wish they were? Because um, one of the things that people don't understand is that uh, you can be, in effect, forced to give up private information. So for example, if you want to apply for a job, um, you can be asked legally to sign what's called an authorization that releases all of your medical records to your employer. And if you want to apply for a life insurance policy, or disability insurance policy, the same thing takes place. Now, 25 years ago, what you would release, was, as it was called then, to one of these third parties was a very limited amount of information. But now, 
the electronic records are what are called longitudinal, they're lifetime records, and they're comprehensive. They include all the healthcare providers that you went to. So you don't have the compartmentalization that actually protected privacy. So you've actually consented to the release of this information, but what you're consenting to, in effect, is a much broader release than it would have traditionally been. That's right. And um, even though you nominally consented to it, you sort of have no, no choice. No choice, if you want the job. Or... Right, if you want to apply for uh, Social Security benefits, if you want to apply for veterans benefits, uh, anything that is related to health, it's legitimate for them to want to see what, what health condition you actually have, but um, we don't have a way to limit the amount of information that's disclosed. One of the things in, in, in HIPAA I know remember you writing about is the, um, the fact that there's a kind of secondary limitation. Some people who receive information by consent from your medical records also have, a limit, have the obligation to maintain the confidentiality of that. Right, but um, th that's assuming that they're what's called a covered entity under the statute, which includes health care plans like an insurance company, health providers like a doctor or a hospital, or health clearinghouses, which are entities that uh, put electronic information in standard formats. So when you release the record to, let's say, a life insurance company, they're actually not covered by the HIPAA privacy rule. And many privacy advocates believe that what we need is comprehensive health privacy legislation so that the protection follows the records, if you will, wherever they go. Anybody who gets the record has the obligation of confidentiality. That's right. Yeah. Is, is there hope that that might actually be enacted? Well, there's hope. I don't know how realistic the hope is. <laughs> well, and HIPAA, in the same way we were talking about the ADA, HIPAA... Uh, allows states to have even more rigorous protections of privacy. So That's it's correct. So it's conceivable some states could It is conceivable that some... some and I, and I think if we do get more privacy protections, they're likely to be at the state level. So let me give you another example of, of uh, how new technology is uh, causing a problem. So if I am walking out on the street with the plastic water bottle, that I've been drinking from and I throw it in a recycle bin or in a trash can, there's no law that protects me if someone picks that up, takes it, and does genetic testing of the saliva residue, and then they've got my entire genetic profile, and it's legal. Well, let, this is an area that really gets, I mean, both the Rothsteins uh, involved in the same kinds of questions, both Mark and Laura, and that is there's another law involving privacy, kind of involving privacy, the Genetic Information Non-Discrimination Act, GINA. Um, is, why, would, why would that not apply? Because it only applies to two categories of disclosures, health insurance and employment disclosures. And one of the so you can use genetic information for other purposes without violating that federal correct. law. Correct. So in the example that I gave, a life insurance company is not subject to GINA. A disability insurance company is not subject to GINA. A long-term care insurance company is not subject to GINA. Let me give you an example of why that's important. Um, now we've learned that there are many genetic factors that predispose people to Alzheimer's disease. And that type of predisposition information would be very valuable 
to a long-term care insurance company because uh, the costs to treat and care for someone with Alzheimer's disease are much higher than their right. typical long-term care person. Should they be allowed to use that information or require testing? And unless the, the federal law is amended or unless states enact legislation, they'll be able to do that. It's, it's, it's kind of a tough question because um, insurance is meant to be a fair bet. That is to say, nobody really knows any more than anybody else about what the risks are. So it's a, a kind of a neutral bet. But if someone buying insurance can know whether he or she has a risk of take Alzheimer's or breast cancer or whatever, um, but the person selling the insurance, comp the insurance policy wouldn't know, that would be tough to make a fair bet. Yes, that's a very good uh, question. Uh, the insurance industry and actuaries call that adverse selection. And although that's something that you want to keep in mind, there's another point that you need to keep in mind as well, and that is even though this is a private contract, it has very important public policy implications. So that if we allowed long-term care insurance companies to discriminate against people on the basis of Alzheimer's disease risk, the effect of that would be to transfer lots more of the cost for care of those people to the Medicaid payment system, and that's the entire population. So it's really not, I mean, it is a question of actuarial fairness in the small sense, but it's a public policy issue of how we want to experience rate or medically underwrite certain insurance yeah, laws. Yeah, ex exactly. Well, I hope you will come back and visit us often uh, on the Law Review because these issues, both of them, the disability law and the whole issue of medical privacy and genetic uh, issues, may not yet be settled entirely. So we're counting on you coming back and, and updating us. Thank you very much to Laura Rothstein and Mark Rothstein from the University of Louisville for being with us. Uh, it's wonderful to have you uh, on the Law Review. Thanks also to our producers, Hank Crook, Grace Garner, Ben Pesner, and Katrina Julian. We invite you to subscribe to the podcast by visiting lawreview.podbean.com or subscribing to the Law Review on iTunes. If you have a topic you would like us to consider on Law Review, you may leave us a message on the Podbean site. Until next time, this is Steve Smith and the Law Review stands adjourned.